I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, in a conversation between acclaimed author and former captain in the Marine Corps, Elliot Ackerman, and former CBS News Vice President and Washington Bureau Chief Christopher Isham, we will dig deep in terms both personal and political into the ongoing crisis in Afghanistan and the historical, practical, and moral implications of the United States' recent chaotic withdrawal from that country, marking the calamitous end of the forever war. Elliot, it's uh, good to talk to you again. I thought today's discussion could really focus on the withdrawal from Afghanistan by the United States over the last two weeks in August and the implications of that withdrawal for, for the United States, for Afghanistan, and for the world, for that matter. Let's begin with your reaction as a veteran who served in Afghanistan over many years to the chaos that you watched unfold over the last two weeks of August after Kabul fell to the Taliban? Sure. Um, and it's going to be talking with you again, Chris. You know, it's important to kind of unpack what happened this summer, I think, in sort of in two categories, right? There's the one category, which is the Biden administration's decision to remove all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by at first September 11th and August 31st, which aligns with the policy put in place by the Trump administration, which was getting us to a total withdrawal. And I think um, that's not a decision I agreed with. We can or cannot get into that. But I think, listen, that's an area where reasonable people can disagree about what the wisest course of action was for the United States to take. But once you've embarked upon that course of a full U.S. withdrawal, then there is, and I'm not the first person to say this, then there's the execution of that withdrawal. And I think it's the execution of the withdrawal where the Biden administration is very much deserving of the 
withering criticism it has endured. I think the decision to have a policy of withdrawal doesn't necessarily merit the withering criticism so long as that policy is handled competently. And I think the real problem is the policy and the execution, it was not handled competently. And so I think a lot of the fallout you're seeing from the Biden administration has been the execution of the withdrawal as opposed to with the withdrawal itself. And I just think that distinction is important because as sort of we are in the damage control mode, the administration frequently kind of tries to pivot the conversation away from criticism on the execution of the withdrawal and go back to this conversation, well, withdrawal was the right thing to do and you can't criticize us on the execution because there's absolutely no way this could have been done without a lot of pain and, in a, and it had to be done and would always be done in a chaotic manner. And and I think that sort of is not or it is somewhat disingenuous. I think this could have been handled far more competently, which kind of gets to the second part of the question, which is how did I get involved with the evacuation efforts? How did veteran, many veterans get involved, you know, and others, journalists and activists, really sort of anyone who has ties to Afghanistan? And frankly, it's, it's a very simple answer because people started calling me. Friends of mine just started calling me. And I am far from alone in this experience of when in the lead up to this withdrawal through kind of this spring and then picking up pace into the summer and then like a red warning alarm after the withdrawal was just uh, your phone lighting up with at first Afghans who I'd worked with, some of whom were still in Afghanistan, some who had resettled to the U.S. and had family in Afghanistan just clamoring for help to get their families out. And I think once you start doing the work to help them, you, know, you quickly realize that there are thousands of other people who need help and everyone sort of diverges on any Americans they can find to help them. So that's how I got involved. And I think that's also how a lot of other people got involved was that Afghans just started calling us. So they were calling you because the, the process was so chaotic. Yes, and I think what you have seen with the execution of this withdrawal is a real breakdown in American competence. The systems one would hope to be in place to manage such a withdrawal were not in place. Systems being like, a, you know, a State Department hotline where you can call and if you have a special immigrant visa, you can be told this is how you get to the airport. I mean, none of that existed. So it really came down to people like myself and others using their networks inside Afghanistan to try to facilitate, at least when Kabul International Airport was open, the passage of Afghans into the airport through the both Taliban checkpoints and uh, U.S. military checkpoints to get on flights. Many of those flights were privately chartered flights um, that were not U.S. military flights, just individuals who were willing to put forward their own funds to bring in private airbuses. Uh, to land in Kabul or in places like Masri Sharif and pull Afghan refugees out. So it was, I think, a, you know, very dispiriting to see such a breakdown in the American system. And I would say, too, this goes up and down. I was in consistent communication with retired flag officers who were struggling to get people they'd worked with out because even for them, there was no one to call. So talk us through a little bit how it actually worked. Were you in phone communication or text communication with Afghans on the ground? Did you instruct them on how to get to a certain point? Were there uh, veteran personnel that were actually on the ground in Afghanistan? Give us a little bit of a sense of how this kind of private evacuation 
actually worked? Oh, well, sort of each occurrence and as the days moved on, it evolved based off of what the conditions on the ground in Kabul were like. So in certain instances, it was a matter of a group of veterans and current and former journalists and activists, basically all of them sort of knew each other or knew of each other, forming up chat groups on Signal via text messenger saying, okay, we have got buses, four buses that are going to leave this point at a given time. And they're going to drive through the city to the airport. And, you know, this person on the chat has connections with the Taliban, for instance, and will make sure they can get through the checkpoints or has connections with the government in Doha, who's going to help. And then this person can help talk these buses through some of the U.S. military checkpoints and pass along a manifest of who's on board. And getting all the approvals from the various people you need to get approvals for, for these buses to enter an airport. And another person is coordinating the funding of an Airbus 320 that's going to fly in and has raised half a million dollars from philanthropic interest in the U.S. to make this happen. And so it was sort of, in each case, Chris, really a matter of crowdsourcing this problem. And then with each day, conditions might change. And so the next day, well, the Taliban is not letting anybody through checkpoints in Kabul. Okay, folks will have to go on foot. And uh, so each iteration was a little bit different. But I would say in all cases, this was a matter of people basically organizing themselves on chat rooms in places like WhatsApp or on Signal and figuring out the component pieces of this to get groups of Afghans to the airport and flown out. And that was, again, that was when the airport was open. And then once it closed, it sort of migrated into overland routes or in certain cases, other airports that aren't Kabul. And is it, there's still, uh, I mean, it's hard to know how many people have been left behind. Uh, The Secretary of State has said that his estimate is there's only about 100 American citizens, but that of course does not take into account the many others, green card holders and permanent residents and allies of the United States who may have been left behind. Um, and that could number in the thousands. Do you have any idea of how many people were left behind? And uh, is the effort to try to get some of those, particularly the ones who are at high risk, out? I mean, the administration itself has conceded that they were not able to even get out half of our partners who they would have liked to have seen taken out of Afghanistan. And I think the messaging has been very quick to mentioned the hundred plus thousand folks who were evacuated, but oftentimes they're only talking about the numerator. They're not talking about the denominator. That's a hundred thousand plus folks, but how many were left behind in the denominator? And also who were the hundred thousand that were able to get out? Because as much as there was sort of a breakdown in competence here, what you saw particularly in the early days was this rush on Kabul International Airport. So the vetting process was really just the strongest and the fastest and who could ever get to Kabul International Airport in literally those first few days after Kabul fell and the airport shut, the gates shut, and the process of getting people in was much more difficult. So in many cases, it wasn't necessarily the right people who got out. It was just those who were fortunate enough to be there at the right time. So it was an extraordinary effort by private citizens, veterans, people, as you said, who used to spent much time in Afghanistan, who felt strongly about helping to get our allies out of the country. Why do you think people responded that way, other than the fact that it clearly was not going well in the U.S. government supervised operations, and it clearly needed some additional assistance? Why was it so important, do you think, to particularly to the veterans, that everything be done to try to save these folks who were 
in danger? You know, because it's personal. And I mean personal in so much as, I mean, listen, Chris, you get someone who calls you on the phone and says, my family is in mortal danger. The Taliban have left death threats or my family has fled their home and they've been told the Taliban have ransacked it and they're hiding. Will you please help me? I mean, you're going to help them or do everything you can. I think one of the things that hasn't been discussed or maybe is being discussed on the margins is this has been, I think, psychologically just excruciating for anyone who served there. I mean, if particularly for veterans, if you see support veterans, I mean, there's no way you could be less supportive than kind of enacting this bungled process. And I just bring that up. If you talk about people's mental health, I'll tell you, like, yes, I was able to participate in some efforts that were able to very luckily get people out. I'll also say I've had plenty of conversations with Afghans who I've basically, particularly at this point, had had to say, like, I don't know how to help you right now, or I don't know how to help your brother or your mother or your, I don't know. Let's keep in touch, but I, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You know, those are tough conversations to have with somebody. And our government's not having those conversations with people. Yeah, I mean, is there a sense that, that America betrayed these folks who we depended on for so many years? Yes. I mean, I don't know any, I mean, I'll just be candid. I don't, need, I, I don't know any other way to put it. We made many promises and we didn't follow through on those promises. Listen, I think there's plenty of blame to go around and the Afghans certainly need to assume a good chunk of the blame too, but so do we. And there's a huge mess that exists right now in Afghanistan and we're certainly a portion to that blame as are the Afghans. So it's, yeah, it's very complicated. So the administration was clearly unprepared for the speed of the collapse. Uh, President Biden had been saying for some time that he didn't think it was inevitable that the Afghan government would fall. He didn't think that we would face a Saigon moment. And of course, all that turned out to be wrong. The Afghan security forces did collapse fairly quickly. And Biden was very quick to blame the Afghans for that collapse in his, a number of his speeches, including the one he gave on, on July 16th. And in all those speeches, of course, he defended the decision to withdraw. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But why do you think the security forces, the Afghan security forces, fell so quickly? Well, it kind of goes to one of the great truisms of war, which was said by Karl von Clausewitz, right? Which is war is the continuation of politics by other means. So you cannot divorce what occurs on the battlefield from what occurs in any nation's political life. So the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and that announcement in April was basically a massive vote of no confidence in the Afghan government. And the military collapse of Afghan forces very much mirrors the political collapse that was occurring in Kabul. And so this sort of idea which I believe is very specious, which said, well, you know, at the end of the day, the Afghans just didn't possess the will to fight, you know, which sort of kind of infers like kind of a, a degree of cowardice on their part or an idea that you know, they just don't have a stiff enough spine to stand for the Taliban, you know, frankly is really, it's nonsense and it's insulting. It's not only insulting to, to Afghans, it's insulting to Americans who fought alongside Afghans, particularly if you just look at the numbers. I mean, in any given year, of the Afghan war, Afghans lost more of their soldiers fighting the Taliban than we Americans lost in 20 years of war. So to make this sort of claim that Afghans just refused to fight and didn't have the, the metal to stand up to the Taliban is really pretty specious. 
I mean, it's particularly specious when we as Americans were the ones who walked off the battlefield. And when we walked off the battlefield, we took away much of the capability that the Afghans relied upon because their military was one that was very much built in our own images. It was one that would relied upon things like air support, medevac. It relied on the types of intelligence that we use as Americans. And so when we said we were leaving, we also took away the enabling support we gave them in those areas as well. So suddenly their aircraft couldn't fly because they didn't have the maintenance support they needed. They no longer possessed the intelligence that they needed. So I feel like kind of blaming our own incompetence uh, and failures on Afghan incompetence isn't necessarily the best messaging. That doesn't mean that the Afghan military isn't without fault. But to me, it seems sort of a a specious claim as we're going out the door, kind of like we're kicking sand in the face of a one-time ally. Right. And I think also the the impact of the announcement by President Biden in April, April 14th, that we were pulling out unconditionally and that regardless of whether the Taliban met its commitments or not, must have had a demoralizing effect on both the government and the security forces and enabled uh, and encouraged the Taliban at the same time. So you're, yeah. you're, uh, you're encouraging our adver- their adversaries and, and demoralizing our allies in, in the mm-hmm. process. Yeah, but Chris, can I just say, you know, like, I'm not unsympathetic to the Biden administration. Like, sort of, I understand what they were trying to do with this policy and the end game they were going for. And I think it was predicated on a very key strategic assumption, which was the Biden administration key to their withdrawal was this idea that they would have what President Nixon called in Vietnam, the decent interval, meaning that we would leave Afghanistan on September 11th. We would declare our wars and the forever wars over on that moment. And then there would be some interval of time. Maybe it was six months. Maybe it was two years before you would see a collapse of the Afghan government. And that interval would maybe allow us to accelerate visas, get more people out, um, but it would really give us as Americans the top cover we needed to say, hey, this didn't happen on our watch. And that's an understandable withdrawal strategy. That's, for instance, that's how the Soviets withdrew in good order in 1989. They did have a decent interval with Najibullah's government. But what happens is there's no decent interval. And when there was no decent interval, which the Biden administration was gambling on, their entire strategy collapsed. Yeah, I mean, I think there were warnings that if we pulled our support, which, of course, we did, that the Afghan security forces might not survive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whenever you do something unconditionally, you're basically saying that there are no rules here and that you're giving a a blank check to the adversary. Are those kind of things, are those things that could have been done better? Absolutely. I mean, you know, listen, the analogies were always made that this isn't going to be a Saigon. You know, this isn't going to be like Vietnam in 1975. And I look at it, I'm like, we should only be so lucky if this was like Vietnam in 1975. In Vietnam, you had hundreds of miles of coastline to deal with. You know, look at a map. Afghanistan is a landlocked country. So our evacuation and withdrawal will be completely reliant upon the air hubs that we control in that country. And so Closing, it's not only a lot of attention has been placed on Bagram, but it's not only Bagram, it's Bagram Airfield, Kandahar Airfield, Jalalabad. These were bases that we just shuttered very precipitously, placing ourselves in a position where the only point of egress 
that we had was Kabul International Airport. And I think we saw the result, which was all of the chaos in, in August. So I think there were, yes, there were certainly many manners of execution that would have been better. And again, you know, there was sort of the arbitrary dates of September 11th and August 31st. If we felt as though our back was against a wall at the end of this summer, you know, it was a wall that we built. So, so much of this withdrawal, once we went down this course of withdrawal, so much of its calamitous execution was the result of many self-inflicted wounds. You're listening to Beyond the Page, the best of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference. I'm your host, John Burnham Schwartz. Now back to our conversation with Elliot Ackerman and Christopher Isham. You know, we've talked a lot about the, the how the decision was implemented. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the policy decision itself, which, as we said, was, was first initiated in the Trump administration and then completed by the Biden administration. You know, the argument here is that it was time to end this forever war, as it was called, and that 20 years is enough, and that we basically had a choice of either pulling out or escalating because the Taliban were making gains on the battlefield. Which, do you agree with that fundamental assessment? Could we have maintained a relatively small footprint we had, the 2,500 or 3,000 troops, without incurring major risk? Or was it was that decision inevitable? No, listen, I believe if we're going to go up to 50,000 feet, I believe that for a long time now, the war in Afghanistan and really sort of the idea of American war making needs sort of a broader kind of reframing. I don't know when this has occurred, but at some point in the last few decades, there's this, been this idea that's entered our collective consciousness that the war only ends when all the troops come home. And if you look back, like, the only time all the troops come home at the end of a war is when we lose the war. So all the troops have come home from Afghanistan because we've lost the war in Afghanistan. All the troops came home from Vietnam because we lost the war in Vietnam. If you look at the wars that we've won, the Second World War, the Korean War, which we fought to a stalemate, you know, you'll see frequently what winds up happening is we leave a contingent of troops to secure the peace. Now, I'm not arguing that Afghanistan was won, but I think that this framing that the only way you can have an appropriate or positive outcome in Afghanistan is if every last U.S. service member has left Afghan soil. I think that preconception has gotten us into a lot of trouble. So if you look at the status of American forces in Afghanistan really before Trump started negotiating with the Taliban, we were in a somewhat strong position. I mean, this wasn't like in 2010 during President Obama's surge when we had 150,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan taking really sustained casualties in an Afghan national army that was really in, in disarray and sort of non-existent. By 2017, 2018, you know, we've, we built a fair amount of capacity in the Afghan national army. Our troop levels are not at 150,000. They're at about a tenth of that, 12,500 to 15,000 U.S. troops. And those troops are no longer fighting alongside the Afghans. They've sort of receded back to more of an advisory capacity inside their fire bases. So if you look at U.S. casualty levels, they're far lower. They're so low, in fact, that in 2018, and this was in advance of the midterm elections, Rasmussen put a poll into the field asking Americans about the war in Afghanistan and how it featured in that election. Chris, 42% of Americans in 2018, they couldn't even tell you if the war in Afghanistan was going on. Like, they just didn't know anymore. Right. Right. So right. at that point, I'm like, listen, 
there was a different direction to go down. Now, I think you could have seen some Afghanistan turn into an enduring U.S. military commitment akin to like what we've seen in our own hemisphere in like, in, for instance, Colombia. And both our narco wars, you know, the war in Colombia has gone on for three decades, has had an enduring U.S. military presence where we have served as advisors and has come to a positive outcome. Now, granted, there are certainly differences between Afghanistan and Colombia, but I think that the framing of this war has in many ways gotten us to kind of the end game we're at now where we are unconditionally surrendering to the Taliban, which frankly I think is remarkable. So we were talking a little bit about the withdrawal and about the decision to withdraw. It's clear that the majority of Americans agree with the decision to withdraw, but the choice that's often presented is that it's a binary choice. It's either all in or all out. And the fact is that our footprint was relatively small and we were not incurring major casualties. But the question is whether the communication could have been better over the years and the explanation could have been better. For example, on things like civil society, things like supporting women's rights, human rights, improving education for all Afghans. These are things that have a national security dimension because a country that has civil rights and human rights is much less likely to act as a platform to attack the United States and allow terrorist organizations to thrive. I'm not sure that Americans really appreciate that, and I think you're right that most Americans don't really understand that we have troops in many places in the world that are there as a deterrent force or a supporting force. And actually with technology today, we can do so much with a relatively few number of troops on the ground in terms of air support and intelligence support, isn't that right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, the thing that's sort of never polled is, yes, three quarters of Americans want to see us get out of Afghanistan, but also how strong does that desire manifest? How desperately do they care? And Afghanistan recently has been, you know, compared to the Vietnam War. Well, if you look at the Vietnam War, when there was a draft on and we were seeing Americans dying in the hundreds in a single week, the desire to get out of Vietnam was extremely strong with most Americans. I think, and again, that's why I bring up the number by Rasmussen. When we're sitting here in 2018 and 42% of Americans don't even know that the war, they can't even tell you if the war is still going on, how much do they care? So when I go back to that moment, I mean, listen, the policy, you know, if I were president for a day, how I would have handled this was I would have given a speech addressed the American people, said, this is what's going on in Afghanistan. This is why I think it's important that we keep a de minimis troop presence there in an enduring way. This is what it's going to look like going forward. These are the numbers versus what the numbers used to be. And I think in 2018, you, you maybe would have had people talking about it for a news cycle if you were lucky, given how much the American people cared. And now we're sitting here about three years later, And because of the way we've allowed this situation to metastasize and based off of many decisions we've made from the Trump administration moving through the Biden administration that I would say were completely strategically misguided, we are sitting here still talking about Afghanistan, having just unconditionally surrendered to the Taliban. So I think if we go back three years, we can clearly see how where we're sitting today was not a fait accompli, but it would have involved some, frankly, some leadership. Uh, on this issue. And I think we've seen a real lack of leadership on this issue. I think Americans can understand that the loss of intelligence, the eyes and ears on the ground, 
they can understand the very high risk of al-Qaeda reasserting itself in Afghanistan. They remain allied with the Taliban. The Taliban remain allied to al-Qaeda. The head of al-Qaeda, Zahari, has pledged loyalty to the head of the Taliban, as mm-hmm. Osama bin Laden did before him. They're very tightly lashed up, these organizations. There's no indication that they've severed their connections. I think people can understand that. I think harder to understand for Americans is why we should care about things like girls going to school in a country like Afghanistan, which is so far away. What would you say to people about that? Well, I think it comes back to this idea of the United States being right, as we've all heard, the indispensable nation. Like, what does that mean? And many people have different interpretations of what that means. And it's a question that has existed with regards to U.S. foreign policy from our founding. And what I mean by that is like the United States was founded on a set of ideals. We're not a nation of blood and soil. We are really a nation that manifests this certain set of enlightenment ideals. And when I say that we are the indispensable nation, it's not because we Americans are in some way superior to all other nations. I view it just as it just so happens at this point in human evolution of the countries in the globe that manifest these enlightenment ideals and aspire to them in different ways, we happen to be the largest and most powerful. Maybe we won't always be, but we do at this moment. So when it comes to trying to secure those ideals and see them spread or at least not recede on the world stage, we are the greatest champion on the field. And when we step away from those ideals, it creates space for the darker forces in the world. And I'm sorry, they exist. Authoritarians like the Chinese, like the Russians, terror states like the Iranians, or just terrorist regimes like the Islamic State to come work their way into the void. And that is something I think an American leader should talk about. Their philosophy with regards to how we as a nation either spread those ideals, which we've often done imperfectly, or at least hold the line against the other nations of the world who behave antithetically to those ideals. So that's sort of, I think, something that should always be in the national conversation. And on the issue of Afghanistan, I don't think really was. We're finishing up here. I wonder how you on a personal level, you can talk a little bit more on a personal level as a veteran, as somebody who worked side by side with the Afghans in Afghanistan over several tours, how you felt about the entire withdrawal and where we are today. I think it's on a personal level. You know, I was talking to a buddy of mine and he and I are both veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so we were trying to understand why, despite sort of the chaos that we've seen in Kabul, even outside of all of that, why this has been in many ways a far more bitter pill for us to swallow than, for instance, watching the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq, for instance, and to see the Islamic State take over cities that we'd fought in in Iraq, like Fallujah and Ramadi. And as we were kind of trying to understand why this one felt much more difficult, I think the place we landed on was that Iraq was always, and even when we were fighting at a war that was sort of predicated on somewhat dubious prospects, and Afghanistan wasn't. Afghanistan was, in its early days, a righteous war. 3,000 Americans had been killed by al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was taking safe haven in Afghanistan. It was right that we would go there and try to bring justice to the people who had perpetrated those attacks. And it was also really only the second time in our country's history 
that we had gone to war predicated on an attack against the homeland, obviously the other time being the Second World War. And so to sit here 20 years on and see our war end so differently than the Second World War had ended, you know, the Second World War obviously being a unconditional victory, having to live through an unconditional defeat was particularly bitter. And, you know, I was actually just yesterday talking with another friend of mine who's a long-serving former Marine and a long-serving CIA officer. And he was telling me how in the building there have been discussions about, you know, how are we going to mark 20 years since September 11th? And really for the agency, I mean, the weeks and months after September 11th were this spectacular success with what they were able to do in Afghanistan. And he told me at the end of the day, they decided they really weren't going to do anything to mark the day. And when I asked him why, he said, you know, it's just sort of tough to imagine holding some type of celebratory remembrance about what we accomplished after September 11th. And the analogy he made was it would sort of be like the Japanese dive bomber pilots who launched a successful raid against Pearl Harbor, marking an anniversary right after the unconditional surrender on the Missouri. And I think this summer for veterans of this war has cast the entire war in many respects in a new light. And really that means has cast the past 20 years in a new light. And I don't purport to speak for all veterans. I'll just speak for myself, but it's caused me to do a lot of reevaluating as we've arrived at this end game. Yeah, it's, uh, that has to be very tough. I mean, and I assume that, you know, while you're in, while you were on the ground, you must have, you and, and your fellow soldiers, uh, Marines, uh, intelligence officers, diplomats, uh, who were all engaged on the ground, must have felt that they were doing the right thing, that they were helping the country become a better place, in addition to securing the United States from another attack. So, again, there was an interconnection between making the country a better mm-hmm. place and protecting the United States from another attack from terrorists who were based there. Yeah. And so it must be very dispiriting to feel that all of that work and sacrifice, because many Americans lost their lives in the process, was erased so quickly that has got to be difficult. I will say this. We talked a little bit before about Biden's strategy of withdrawal likely being predicated on a decent interval. That, you know, this would work if there was a decent interval and the decent interval didn't occur. And so the withdrawal strategy failed. I would say at this moment, the strategy for Afghanistan going forward, President Biden has administrated it that we're going to have a over the horizon counterterrorism strategy. Now, in fairness to President Biden, if we're sitting here 10, 20 years from now and no major attack has occurred on the United States or the West that has originated from Afghanistan, then I think credit where credit is due, his strategy worked. But if the alternative proves to be the case and we do see an attack occur from Afghanistan, then I think it's going to be shown that his was a failed strategy. And 
I'm very cautious with regards to his strategy because, listen, if we look at this, whether it's our withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, which leads to the rise of the Islamic State in 2014, and then you have attacks like what we saw at the Bataclan in Paris and ISIS coming within several miles of Baghdad, whenever you leave a vacuum or when you turn a country like Afghanistan into a black hole, strange and oftentimes evil things incubate in those dark places and then they come out into the light of day and they bite you. And we've seen that happen many, many times. We've seen it happen in Afghanistan. We've seen it happen in other parts of the world with remarkable regularity and consistency. And I think President Biden's strategy going forward is predicated on this idea that it's not going to happen this time. And you know what? If he's right, then he's right. But I think it is a very risky strategy going forward. Very risky. I mean, there's no question that Afghanistan will once again become a magnet for jihadis of all stripes um, as the Taliban struggle to maintain control of the country. And I think, Chris, this idea that they have in some way been chastened after 20 years with us is sort of preposterous. I mean, the international jihadi movement is not chastened at this moment. They just won the Super Bowl. I mean, they're completely reinvigorated. Yeah, no, this is definitely reinvigorated. There's no question about that. Well, Elliot, thank you so much. This has been a terrific conversation. And I appreciate your time and and insights and um, is obviously to be continued. Uh, This is a a problem that's going to be with us for some time and as we go forward. And and I also want to personally thank all the efforts that you made and your fellow veterans made to get our allies out. I thought that was just a tremendous, impressive effort. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for the conversation. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday.